You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Blender reappears as Sinbad. A Tonto team cyber espionage attempt against Group IB is thwarted. Darkbit claims responsibility for a ransomware attack on Technion University. An overview of ICS and OT security. Ben Yellen looks at surveillance oversight at the state level. Ann Johnson from Afternoon Cyber T speaks with Maureen Allison about the CISO transformation. And it's Valentine's Day, that annual holiday of love, chocolate, flowers, and online scams. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, February 14th, 2023. You may remember Blender, a cryptocurrency mixer used by North Korea's Lazarus Group as a money laundering tool. It was effectively driven out of business in May of last year by U.S. Treasury Department sanctions. It has now, however, apparently been reconstituted, researchers at Elliptic report, under the name Sinbad, and it's once again at work for the Lazarus Group. Elliptic says... Sinbad was launched in early October 2022, and despite its relatively small size, it soon began to be used to launder the proceeds of Lazarus hacks. Tens of millions of dollars from Horizon and other North Korea-linked hacks have been passed through Sinbad to date and continue to do so, demonstrating confidence and trust in the new mixer. Like Blender, Sinbad is a custodial mixer, meaning that its operator has full control over the crypto assets deposited within it. Group IB says its employees were targeted by a phishing campaign launched by the suspected Chinese threat actor Tonto team. During the summer of 2022, Group IB employees received phishing emails with malicious office documents crafted with the Royal Road Weaponizer, which is often used by Chinese state-sponsored actors. The emails were meant to deliver bisonal.double-t, a strain of malware exclusively used by the Tonto team. Group IB's security solution flagged the emails as malicious. 
During their investigation, the security firm found that it had been targeted by the Tonto team in 2021 as well. These attacks were also unsuccessful. The researchers note that most Chinese state-sponsored threat actors are focused on conducting espionage or surveillance. Technion University in Haifa, Israel, fell victim to a ransomware attack that forced the shutdown of all of the school's communication networks on Sunday, the Jerusalem Post writes. A new ransomware group, Darkbit, has claimed responsibility for the cyber attack, ARN reported today. The university tweeted Sunday, The Technion is under cyber attack. The scope and nature of the attack are under investigation. The group behind the attack, Darkbit, is asking for 80 Bitcoin, or approximately $1.7 million from the university, with a threatened 30% increase in the demand if the ransom is left unpaid for 48 hours. Darkbit appears to be motivated by anti-Israeli or pro-Palestinian sentiment. The Israeli National Cyber Directorate confirmed that they were connecting with Technion University administrators to get a full picture of the situation, to assist with the incident, and to study its consequences, the Jerusalem Post reported Sunday. Killnet, the prominent hacktivist group serving as an auxiliary of Russian intelligence and security forces, continues to attempt distributed denial-of-service attacks against NATO sites. Most of these have been of short duration and little effect, but there was some inconvenience caused to the Atlantic Alliance's earthquake relief efforts. The hacktivism has been far from one-sided. Dark Reading reviews the history of hacktivist actions rallied loosely around the hashtag OpRussia. They've consisted largely of distributed denial-of-service attacks, defacements, media hijacking, and data breaches. Ukrainian news reports that the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, will allocate $60 million to Ukraine in support of efforts to protect the country's infrastructure from cyber attacks. Attempted Russian cyber attacks against infrastructure have not been confined to Ukraine. Politico cites Drago's CEO Robert M. Lee to the effect that the Russian Chernovite threat group undertook preparations against roughly a dozen U.S. electrical and natural gas facilities early in Russia's war against Ukraine. Lee said, This is the closest we've ever been to having U.S. or European infrastructure, I'd say U.S. infrastructure, go offline. It wasn't employed on one of its targets. They weren't ready to pull the trigger. They were getting very close. He suggested that successful public-private cooperation played a role in protecting U.S. infrastructure. Dragos has published its ICS and OT Cybersecurity Year in Review for 2022. The report found that ransomware attacks against industrial organizations nearly doubled last year, with 70% of these attacks targeting the manufacturing industry. The report states, There were multiple reasons for the increase in ransomware activity impacting industrial organizations, including political tensions, the introduction of Lockbit Builder, and the continued growth of ransomware as a service. Dragos observed ransomware trends tied to political and economic events, such as the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and Iranian and Albanian political tensions. The security firm also discovered two new threat actors in 2022, Chernovite and Bentonite. Chernovite is the developer of PipeDream, an ICS attack framework that Dragos says represents a substantial escalation in adversarial capabilities. The framework was likely developed by a state-sponsored actor, 
but Drago says it doesn't appear to have been deployed in the wild yet. Chernovite and its pipe dream tool are the ones seen in preparations for actions against U.S. infrastructure during Russia's war against Ukraine. Bentonite is a threat actor that's been opportunistically targeting maritime oil and gas, governments, and the manufacturing sectors since 2021. Dragos says Bentonite conducts offensive operations for both espionage and disruptive purposes. Dragos, as a policy, doesn't attribute activity to particular nation-states, but the researchers note that Bentonite has overlaps with a threat actor tracked by Microsoft as Phosphorus, which Microsoft has tied to the Iranian government. And finally, it's Valentine's Day. Did you remember? If not, hit those e-commerce sites that offer immediate delivery of candy, flowers, articles of apparel, and the like. And hey, we reminded you, you're welcome. So again, today is the annual holiday of love, and the scammers are using that to their advantage. Bitdefender shared yesterday that just approximately 83%, or just over four out of five Valentine's Day spam emails, on average, are scams. This statistic is pulled from Valentine's Day-themed spam emails analyzed by Bitdefender from January 22nd through the 8th of February this year, with a considerable spike observed between the 6th and 8th of this month. English-speaking countries are by far the primary target of these attacks, with 45% targeting U.S. inboxes. Gifts and adornments for your loved one are a major subject of these emails, though people looking for love appear to be favorable targets as well. So love, by all means, love, but with the mind as well as the heart. Sure, they may say that love may be blind, but we think maybe it's just squinting. Coming up after the break, Ben Yellen looks at surveillance oversight at the state level. Ann Johnson from Afternoon Cyber Tea speaks with Maureen Allison about the CISO transformation. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. 
Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero-trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Microsoft's Ann Johnson is the host of the Afternoon Cyber Tea podcast. And in a recent episode, she spoke with Maureen Allison about the CISO transformation. Here's part of that conversation. I'm Ann Johnson. And on today's episode of Afternoon Cyber Tea, I am joined by Maureen Allison. Maureen is currently an advisory board member for Covenant Technologies, which is a leading IT and cybersecurity staffing firm, and also advisor at Balbix, a leading cybersecurity posture automation platform. Prior to Maureen's current roles, she was the Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer for Johnson & Johnson and has had a magnificent and storied career in the military, in intelligence, in technology, and in health and life sciences. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Team, Maureen. I am absolutely thrilled to have you on. Oh, Anne, it's great to see you. What excites you about the technology we have today and the promise of the technology today? And on the flip side of that, what do you worry about? What do you think the criminals can do based on the technology we have, we are leveraging today? I have seen technology change all the way from RACF and mainframe computing and no internet to internet, voice over IP. And it would be very easy for Austin security to worry about all the gremlins that are going to be there. I think we have to understand how the gremlins uh, might attack the technology. But if we were to do that, we'd still have rotary phones and we'd have no connected computer devices. And we can't. We have to lean into the future. And especially as data and AI and ML become the way uh, the universe. But think of what can happen. A doctor can read, I think I saw 80,000 articles in their entire life. But can you imagine what a computer can read and all the data it can pull forward? So when, as we're trying to solve disease states, you're going to have to have um, this huge computing power that's going to be able to look at all this data and look at correlations like humans can never look at correlations. Yes, maybe uh, with 5G or uh, quantum computing, it's, oh, the, somebody's going to crack encryption codes. Yeah, they will. It just is going to happen. Let's plan for it and let's move to the future where we can overcome that. Because when you can use quantum for bad, you will also use it for good in security and in healthcare and banking, all the different areas is going to help us as well as create a potential risk. But we've lived our entire lives and for centuries, that's how people have lived. You see the new risk and you move through it to protect. And that's what we do as cyber professionals. We get to come up with all those solutions now. What does it take to be a CISO today? There are some folks that feel like being a CISO, you need to be deeply technical. There's other folks that believe you need to be a really great business person. But what are the requirements? What does it take today to be a CISO, to talk to the board, to talk to regulators, to even be external and talk to customers and partners? 
Yeah, you know, we grew out of being security engineers. And so a lot of us that are at the senior levels of the CISO ranks, we started out as security engineers. But the ones that have risen into the large company CISOs, it's because they understand the business they're in. And, you know, for a while there, CISOs were 18 months was as long in the CISO suite. All of my engagements have been, I had one for three years, but for the most part, 10-year engagements. And the reason is, is understanding the business and what it's doing and why it's doing it. And it's also understanding regulatory. You have to be a Jill of all trades. It can't be one thing. And the folks that are very IT security engineer focused also have to understand that we're the department of yes and here's how, not the department of no. And that's where the CISOs become enablers of their business so that they can lean in. Why are you optimistic about the future of cyber? What what would you send off our audience with? You know, I'm so optimistic is because of the youth, um, the people coming up in the industry. I came in with an electrical engineering degree. There was no cyber. And if I can do it, then what can you imagine that the individuals that are in college today or technical school today or military are going to bring to the table in 20 years? And so I love the talent that's out there and growing this talent and seeing where they're going to go. And I truly believe in it. And, and you know, as a gray haired, uh, you know, moves on to an advisory role, I'm just excited about this exuberance and intellectual capacity of the next generations coming after us. You can hear the rest of this conversation as part of the Afternoon Cyber Tea podcast. You can find that on our website, thecyberwire.com, or wherever you find your podcasts. Joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Uh, interesting uh, a bit of business that came to my attention from a friend of the show, Cyrus Farivar, a journalist. Uh, and he wrote, uh, I actually found this over on Mastodon. Hey, this may be our first Mastodon link, Ben. Uh-huh. Says, All uh, right. Maryland, it's a new day. That's right. He says, Maryland has proposed a state-level privacy technology board, which would act as a watchdog, similar to Oakland's Privacy Advisory Commission. He says, I think if enacted, it would be the first state-level board of its kind. So you and I are here in Maryland, so yay us. <laughs> but, uh, Always good to see our uh, great state taking the lead on something like this. That's yeah. right. So can you unpack what uh, is going on here, Ben? 
Sure. So this is a proposed piece of legislation uh, currently in front of the Maryland State Senate. The sponsor is a guy named Charles Sidnor, who's really been a leader on uh, these issues. He's previously a member of the House of Delegates. Hmm. So this bill would create what what they call a privacy technology board. It would be a multi-stakeholder board within the State Department of Public Safety and Correctional Services. So you'd have representatives from uh, the Police Association, Sheriff's Association, Uh, Department of Corrections, uh, from privacy and civil liberties groups, really uh, running the gamut in terms of representation. And the board, once it's convened and adopts rules for conducting its business, would evaluate uh, and would have authority to approve or disapprove the purchase use or continued use of surveillance technology by law enforcement agencies. Hmm. Um, So... That would really give this uh, new governing board a little bit of teeth. So a law enforcement agency would have to obtain authorization from the board before they accept any state uh, funds, federal funds, or any other private donations for acquiring new surveillance technology or using uh, that technology or using existing surveillance technology or the information from that surveillance for a purpose not previously authorized by the board. There are a couple of exceptions here. One of them, I think, is is a common sense exception for exigent circumstances. There's some type of ongoing investigation, terrorist attack, people's lives are at, uh, at stake, and there's some type of technology out there that would allow law enforcement to do, do its job. Um, then an exception could be made, uh, and there would be post hoc approval on the part of this privacy board. And then the other is for large-scale events, of which there are certainly many uh, in the state of Maryland, and it makes sense why you might want to deploy novel uh, surveillance methods uh, for that. But you would only be able to use that surveillance technology to respond to that uh, exigent circumstances or that large event. Then it would have to go through the uh, normal authorization process. I don't like to handicap legislation, but I happen to know a good deal about how the Maryland General Assembly works. Yeah. And sometimes it takes like two or three years to get your good idea across the finish line. They meet in three-month sessions, and you kind of take trial runs with various bills. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. You introduce it. You get it in front of a committee. Uh, this is going to be uh, – there's going to be a committee hearing on this bill. Uh, you kind of take the temperature of how various stakeholders would would feel about this. I think we'll learn from this committee hearing how local law enforcement agencies would react to something like this. I'm going to go ahead and guess negatively. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, And you kind of take a measure of whether this would be a feasible policy idea in the the long run. Hmm. Um, So whether or not it passes this year, I think this certainly... Uh, raises the prospect that we could see something like this get enacted in Maryland uh, in the near future, and, and it could be a model for other states. Uh, this, or what, are we, what are we calling it, a mastodon? Yes, a, it's a, 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 toot. a toot. Yes, it's yeah, a toot. They yes. really picked the worst name for that. Um, but this toot uh, notes that the city of Oakland has a similar privacy advisory commission, but we have not seen it at the state level. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be, f- there, there are going to be, Entities who fight this tooth and nail, yeah, largely with the context that there is a major violent crime problem in the state of Maryland uh, at present, and you know this would make life marginally more difficult for law enforcement. Uh, uh-huh. But I certainly think it's a very promising idea. So this would aim to come at sort of day to day surveillance. You're, you know, using facial recognition on your 
uh, pole cameras that you have out on the street, that sort of thing. Exactly. Or, um, you know, if there's like a new type of infrared technology or a new uh, novel license plate reader. I mean, any novel surveillance method, a stingray device Mm -hmm. that hasn't previously been used and adopted by law enforcement Mm -hmm. uh, would have to go in front of this multi-stakeholder review board. Would this have any effect on federal agencies operating within the state of Maryland? I don't think it does because this applies to state and local law enforcement agencies. I see. The Maryland state government does not have jurisdiction over federal uh, law enforcement agencies that happen to be operating in Maryland. So the FBI can do whatever it wants subject to federal law. Right. Um, The Maryland General Assembly is not going to be able to constrain that. I see. All right. Well, uh, again, uh, interesting development here. Uh, Maybe this is the, the shape of things to come. Absolutely. Uh, There's also a provision here before we finish that would allow a person who has been subjected to a surveillance technology uh, or who has had personal information obtained, retained, access, shared in violation of this statute could actually sue the law enforcement agency and be uh, entitled to recover actual damages Hmm. of $100 per day. Again, that's not going to be, you know, that's not going to make anybody rich, but it might be an extra disincentive for these law enforcement agencies and might be a reason why they would comply with the provisions of of the statute. Yeah, interesting. All right. Well, again, a a tip of the hat to Cyrus Farivar for uh, bringing our attention to this. Uh, Ben Yellen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. 
In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.